on Life. Hello and welcome to Lucas on Life. Well, it seems that our latest Prime Minister, and let's face it, we've had quite a few in recent months, he's been in hot water again. Caught filming in a car while not wearing a seatbelt, he's made front-page headlines in some of the tabloids, and now Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been issued a fixed penalty for that infraction. Now, Number 10 said Mr Sunak fully accepts that this was a mistake and has apologised, adding that he would quickly settle the fine. Passengers caught failing to wear a seatbelt when one is available can be fined £100. According to the BBC, Labour's deputy leader, Angela Rayner, said in a tweet that Mr Sunak was a total liability. And a Labour Party spokesperson added, hapless Rishi Sunak's levelling up photo op has blown up in his face and has turned him into a laughing stock. The Liberal Democrats chimed in as well and said that Sunak was now the second ever serving Prime Minister to be fined by a police and he's shown the same disregard for the rules as Boris Johnson. And then Deputy Lib Dem leader Daisy Cooper said, from party gate to seatbelt gate, these Conservative politicians are just taking the British people for fools. But Conservative MP for Blackpool South, Scott Benton, defended Mr Sunak, saying, everybody makes mistakes. So what are we to make of all of this? Now, let me be clear, just in case you're tempted to write in and complain, lawmakers need to keep the law. People in public office need to be an example. When they mess up, they should apologise. Should Rishi have been issued a fixed penalty? Absolutely, yes. Are the public right to be angry when our leaders take the view that there's one rule for them and another for us? Yes, I think I've made all that rather clear. But on reflecting about this, I've been wondering about some of the responses to this infraction. I've wondered how many of us have ever driven off in our cars and have spent a few seconds or minutes without our seatbelt on, and then we remember we've hastily clunk-clicked and restored ourselves from the place of temporary lawlessness. Perhaps in making his apology, the Prime Minister could have invited fellow members of Parliament to declare if they'd ever made a similar error. Jesus taught about a chap who is always looking for a speck in someone else's eye while ignoring a plank in their own. So, in the issue of seatbelt gate, I'm not trying to make a political point, but rather ask a wider and more important question. Do we get delighted when someone else fails, but then ignore our own failures? Self-awareness, that's our theme for Lucas on Life tonight. Eyeing up a splendidly colourful shirt in the shop window, I decided to investigate further. A doorbell ding announced my arrival when I was greeted by a chap who'd begun his day by pouring himself into skinny jeans that were surely restricting his circulation. Greeting me with a smile, he looked me up and down. Good morning, sir. Looking for something a little more trendy, are we? Resisting the temptation to flee, I affirmed my interest in that psychedelic shirt. Emboldened because the item was actually on sale and brushing aside any concern that I might look like Joseph with his famous Technicolor coat of many colours, I emerged from the store wearing my new purchase. Throughout the rest of that day, people complimented me on my fashion choice, although one or two smirked as they did so. Was the shirt a bit too much, I wondered. 
Arriving home, my wife Kay put on sunglasses in response to my dazzling attire and then burst out laughing as I did a twirl to model my new look. Apparently, the lean sales assistant had forgotten to remove a very large label from the back of the shirt, and so I'd spent the day sporting a tag that read, Massively reduced. Won't last long. Others had seen something about me that was screamingly obvious, but I hadn't noticed it myself. It happens all the time, often at a much more serious level. There's that chatty friend who dominates every conversation by talking about him or herself, outlining in agonising details stories about where they've been, who they've met and what their future plans are. And when they finally pause for breath and someone seizes the opportunity to share something, the response is predictable. Oh, that happened to me too. Let me tell you about it. The friends groan in resignation and quietly wonder about resigning from being that person's friend. Sometimes this lack of self-awareness morphs into something more sinister as we harshly criticise others for doing what we do all the time. I watched in horror as a senior church leader berated his staff for always being late for meetings, apparently unaware of what they were all thinking. Being unpunctual was his own continuous habit, and ironically, he'd been 20 minutes late for the gathering when he rebuked everybody else for being late. In a teaching style reminiscent of Monty Python, Jesus painted a portrait of a hapless chap who runs around with a magnifying glass, mustard keen to identify specks of sawdust in the eyes of others, but all along oblivious to the whacking great plank that sticks out from his own head. Apparently, this log in Jesus' day would have been the main support for a house, which would have made it about 12 metres long, a significant protrusion. If we're to avoid this self-myopia, we all need friends who can tell us what we don't want to hear about ourselves. And more positively, they can also help us discover what's right with us as well as what might be wrong. We can actually be oblivious to the positive aspects of who we are. Naming ourselves after our worst moments of regret, shame blinds us to the good work that God has done in shaping our character. When we're looking to identify our spiritual gifts, those closest to us can help us to discover our God-given strengths as well as our human fragilities. There was another smile to come on the day that I bought that super loud shirt. Kay, who had jokingly donned those sunglasses when she saw it, spent 20 frustrated minutes searching for them. It turns out they were parked on the top of her head all the time. She just hadn't noticed. The BMW was big, startlingly blue, and nothing short of just beautiful. I admired it longingly, trying to erase words like covetousness from my mind as I did so. It belonged to Chris and Jeannie, two very close friends. Now, I'm not normally a car fan. My car has 146,000 miles on it and it's 21 years old and I have no plan to replace it. I will drive it until it comes time for a decent Christian burial. And I scoff at television commercials that feature voluptuous ladies and slogans like Britain's sexiest car. Perhaps there's something wrong with my hormones, but I confess that I have never felt amorously stirred by a couple of tons of metal. But this BMW, it was just a beautiful thing. 
No hint of shimmer or wave could be found in the paintwork, just a flat, gleaming ocean of liquid glass in a rich blue sheen. I eased myself onto the back seat, enjoying the luxurious smell of leather. The car purred as we began our journey, bumps and potholes in the road, ironed out instantly by superb suspension. And then, suddenly, everything went wrong. Chris, the driver, noticed that the normally attentive controls were malfunctioning badly. The trip computer on the dashboard was manifesting in German. I could smell oil, and I felt the need to testify to this fact. I can smell oil, I remarked as casually as I could. Jeannie turned and looked back at me and made a startling assertion. That's not oil, Jeff. Your backside is on fire. You see... It turns out that earlier that day, a new battery had been fitted in the car, which unusually was sighted under the back passenger seat. That would be my seat. Unfortunately, the battery company had installed the wrong model, and so the terminals were sticking up a full inch higher than they should. So when I planted my behind on the luxurious leather, the seat went down, and the metal frame of the seat went down and connected with the proud terminals, which shorted out. Now, the battery was actually on fire, and the car's electrical systems were going swiftly into terminal meltdown. We quickly pulled the car over, jumped out at lightning speed, called the fire brigade, and watched the beautiful machine go up in flames. Seconds later, it was a total write-off. Chris was fully insured and said very graciously that he had never really liked the car anyway. I'm not sure about that. I was stunned by my own lack in the self-awareness department. I'd been surrounded by smoke. A miniature inferno was gathering heat beneath my rear end, and I hadn't noticed. It was left to my observant friend Jeannie to point out what should have been so profoundly obvious. Take a snapshot of that scene and consider that to be a parable. Again, how often are we guilty of being blissfully unaware of the presence in our lives of all kinds of shortcomings, character flaws, and sometimes downright sins? People around us must marvel at our myopia and are stunned that we seem blind to what is so very apparent to everyone else. Hopefully, will have the grace to respond with gratitude and kindness when, figuratively speaking, a friend quietly whispers, Excuse me, but did you know your backside is on fire? How many once beautiful lives now look like something of a write-off simply because of a refusal to listen? Lord, help us to be self-aware and help us to listen to our friends when we really don't want to. We're thinking about self-awareness and also about the way that we look at others, often critically. For some reason, my dad wouldn't eat baked potatoes with their skins left on. He always insisted that they had to be peeled. My soldier father was captured during the Second World War and spent a number of years behind the barbed wire of Italian and German prison camps. He never spoke much about those days. All I knew was that he escaped during a six-week final death march as the Germans frantically fled from the advancing Russian army, herding their prisoners as they did. 
With shining eyes, he spoke of the moment of decision when he chose a dangerous dash to freedom. Capture would mean certain death. A bend in the road offered a 10-second window when he was out of sight and shot of the trigger-happy guards. He and a friend staggered into the woods. At last, they stumbled upon a house and they found a German woman and her young family there. Assuring her that they meant no harm, they asked only for a place to sleep the night and a meal of potatoes, peeled potatoes, please. And that was all he told me about those dark days. As a teenager, when I became a Christian, he was appalled. He snorted in disbelief when I told him loudly of my encounter with the God of love. But he only protested once. With the dogged fervency peculiar to the zealous convert, I harassed him and conjoled him and insisted that he repent. And when he briefly mentioned the subject of suffering, I quoted scripture after scripture. I prodded and jabbed at him with my clever, small, so-called answers and assumed that he just had a hard, rebellious heart. He did later become a follower of Jesus. Pondering his life, there have been times when I've wondered about those lost years in the prison camps, and then recently I stumbled upon a secret treasure that broke my heart and challenged my soul. Flipping through an old document box, I discovered the letter that the Red Cross sent when my dad was captured. It named the last prison camp that he was in, and I did some research into Google and discovered that the camp was just a few miles from Auschwitz, and it was worse than I'd ever imagined. The captives were kept on a starvation diet in barracks that were infested with fleas. Some of the prisoners had chains around their necks. Some were shot in the head for not working hard enough. And the final march was a freezing hell. And I wept as I remembered my clever little answers on the subject of suffering and my judgmentalism because of his initial lack of response to my preaching. How easily he could have shattered my boldness with just one story but he never did. I had a lack of self-awareness and I lacked any sense of an awareness of his background because you see, everybody has a story. Their reactions are the product of their journey, encouragements, rejections, triumphs and failures, joys and pains, exhilaration and devastation. And I also learned about the starvation diet that the prisoners endured, that my dad had to endure. For breakfast, they were given nothing. In the evening, a small cube of hard black bread. And at midday, thin watery soup, void of protein, and three potatoes, which were usually green, rotten, and always served with the skins left on. Everybody has a story. Well, as we conclude this program, we've used the Prime Ministerial Seatbelt Saga as an opportunity for us to consider how we respond when others fail. Do we look at our own failings and do we remember that they have a story? Perhaps there's some speck hunting traits in all of us. When others fail and we notice and even celebrate their failures, we feel better about ourselves. So often churches are divided by zealots who love to point out and emphasize the failures of others. Let's ask God to give us grace. Let's pray that our leaders in politics and church will lead by example. And, Prime Minister, next time you get into a car, put that seatbelt on. See you next time. Lucas on Life.